Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Foley, here with Mike Mitchell. Hey, what's up Scott? Not too much. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of July 3rd, 2023. So Mike, I was going to kick off with um, a report I saw from Trend Micro. Uh, it was a malvertising used as an entry vector for Black Cat. Actors also leverage Spy Boy Terminator. And, you know, on this article, the biggest thing that stands out to me isn't really what the in payloads are and who they're associated with, but they actually shared some interesting, um, I would say, information and context that make threat hunting a viable uh, approach to this pretty much this whole report. So, uh, you know, the, the big thing here is they were taking advantage of applications that are commonly used by people or sought out to download. And uh, they're able to basically uh, create the keywords um, and make them popular enough so they were showing up at the top of ads when you use like a Bing search or Google search. So it was redirecting you to, you know, their site, which was a clone of the legitimate site. Um, and then you would pull down the tool and you'd be infected with their malware. Um, so this was a, a scene with a win SCP which is a common tool when you want to do a secure copy through like an SSH connection from a Windows machine to any other like Linux or other types of machine there. Um, and they also have some relation to previous campaigns where they're doing the same thing with any desk. Um, but basically, you know, there some things to think about here is they did have kind of a clone copy with, a, you know, a spoof domain. So it was similar to the real domain. But the download link was, you know, redirected from the spoof domain and then it would take you down to the package. And so something I thought was interesting here, and that is looking for this type of behavior. Um, and that is uh, when you look at proxy logs, a lot of times if you move from one page from another, it, you get a refer, uh, which is basically what page were you on um, prior to that led you to this uh, next page. So I assume you'd be able to use a refer field in typical proxy logs. And if you were to sort those alphabetically, um, typo squatted or spoof domains usually stand out a lot more because they can be adjacent to the legitimate ones. And you'll see kind of duplicate domains for similar topics. And you're like, well, what are these? Are they legitimate? Or are they, um, and that's kind of a good way to, to identify this type of behavior, I think. Um, the other thing is the payload, uh, something we've seen a lot of, uh, which is interesting because it's still going to stick around is it was an ISO image. So we were seeing a lot of ISO images being used in phishing emails. Right. Now you have, you know, small ISO images being downloaded that you just mount and run. I think it's just because running ISO images is so easy now that it becomes a great container to put things in. Um, yeah. I think the, um, which is interesting about that, just a quick comment is, you know, it's, it's, atypical for daily users to mount ISOs, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that should be a, a kind of an immediate identifier because typically your your engineers or people that are, are mounting, you know, large files or needing to use ISOs um, a little bit more regular in their day-to-day, -day, but 
you know, somebody in the sales department or HR typically is not melting ice their desktop. So it does it does kind of stand out as kind of a clear indication that something might be yeah, and something that I, I find interesting too with these ISOs is, uh, depending on your tool set and visibility, you know, pay attention to the size, right? Uh, you know, a lot of legitimate ISOs are usually big. That's why they're stored that way and containerized that way. Um, then in this case, they're just passing an EXE and a DLL. Um, so what would happen when you ran that setup EXE or whatever the EXE was, it would pull in that DLL and it actually, the DLL was responsible for two things. It pulled down the legitimate version of the application so the user was, you know, none the wiser as far as they got what they wanted. Um, but it also ran kind of a Python environment to pull down COBOL Strike Beacon. And that Python environment is actually put into the run keys in the registry. So it's something we talk about a lot. It's, it's so crazy how it seems like it doesn't matter the level of sophistication in adversaries. Run keys are just a thing, right? It's the easiest way to get a one layer of persistence now that might not be the only layer but it seems like a great place to, to start just know something's up so you find it i would still look for other things but yeah um, that's a big one um and then the other thing I, I usually uh like to see or look for is you know what does the c2 behavior look like is it going to blend in well and in this case i would say it wouldn't because first off all the c2 activity was direct ip call out stage cps so no domain URL and out of majority of the ports they were used were 8443, which are, you know, ports, common ports to be used for you know, alternate port for HTTPS, but wouldn't be a majority in your traffic, right? So you could almost look for any direct IP um, callouts um, that might be looking for this behavior. And C2, being the nature of most C2, it'd be a frequent. There'd be some frequencies there as where you see consistency. So just seeing that behavior um, helps a lot. Uh, then they, it was interesting, they, you know, their discovery stuff, they kind of broke it up in a few different ways. Um, they use AD find, which we've seen as common behavior. They use a tool to kind of pull, but they only pulled the computer information. Um, and then they actually use the standard get uh, AD user commandlet for PowerShell for all the user-based stuff. And then they use the find string, kind of a lull bin, which is interesting because it's a lull bin that's not used for you know, execution or anything fancy. But it lets you basically run string searches and regex um, looking for file names, potentially, and, and some files you might be able to look inside. Uh, and the note that was interesting there was they were one of the key strings they were looking for was C password, which is kind of a deprecated way for storing passwords and group policy re references. So uh, they were kind of looking for anywhere passwords could you know persist that way. This looks like manual tasks that the actor is doing from what the article is kind of talking about, right? So this is somebody iterating through the next steps after they get access to the computer, looking for the AD users, looking for the passwords. Um, and I think you mentioned before where, you know, it'd be with with humans coming here, right? And so, yeah. um, you know, seeing kind of, you know, if you're running the get AD user command and you kind of that figure something and you get a return error, and then also, how often are users in your environment running Git AD user from PowerShell? Right. So, right. as I read this article, there's a lot of indicators outside of the typical IFCs that you can start tracing down um, to to look at some of this activity. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's it makes it easier. You know, when we when it seems like the adversary is more hands-on keyboard, I think it makes it easier to identify behaviors, uh, just because they typically run. Uh, a larger volume of kind of those behaviors. 
uh, which we do see here, right? And then um, one of the interesting things they did, which I don't think I've seen someone try to do before, um, but they basically were doing your your standard way to download things with PowerShell, like get object, download whatever. Um, and they were hitting the loopback address uh, on their host. And they, in their report, uh, specified that that might be them trying to identify if they've got admin access or not, because then they're able to access like the admin share and do things, which I've never seen that before. And that's, you know, a pretty strong fingerprint because I wouldn't say it's that that common, um, but it's interesting. So I was going to actually play with that and see how that works, what that looks like after all this. Um, but that was interesting. Um, they use WMI lateral movement for a lot of COBOL strike beacons as well. Um, they pulled down additional tools. So this is another good sign of evidence that they were on hands-on keyboard kind of approach because usually when adversaries are pulling down additional tools, they're coming across other hurdles or things they got to get around or next steps of their whatever process is. Uh, so they typically will move more tools in and do more things. And they were doing that with bits admin and curl and some PS exec. Um, and then there's kind of a, a kill AV bat script. Uh, I guess it's, I don't know if it's on the underground. I don't know if it's completely open source, um, but they made a call to it as if it was like a wide known thing. But basically it's like bat scripts for disabling all sorts of security features. And, and then it's interesting, you know, when we talk about persistence, you know, they mentioned they had the run key, right? But that was tied to a cobalt, you know, strike beacon. Um, they had cobalt strike running as their access, but then they also installed any desk, um, which, you know, we've seen a lot of adversaries do. It's really easy to have that. And I would say if any desk is installed, I don't know. I feel like that would be the primary um, avenue they would want to control things because they probably have a little more they could do with that. You know, you have to be savvy and kind of have some things pre-coded in stage for the cobalt strike interactions or, you know, you only get the command line. So, um, so yeah, it kind of gives them that uh, lower point of entry as far as doing things on their, on their compromised boxes. Right. No, so, yeah, that was. Yeah, I was going to say. I think this uh, again. Every time I read some of these articles, it things stand out. At least from my engineering kind of background, uh, kind of stands out on things you could do to help protect yourself. Um, looking at installed software, you know, depending on the maturity and the the visibility you have in your environment, a lot of the things that they're doing seems like red flags, right? It seems like mm-hmm. those things should be called out pretty immediately. Uh, but as we know, that's not, Right. Another great example is uh, downloading Python at zip into your user public videos folder. Right. Um, and running kind of Python out of the public videos folder. Right. Mm-hmm. And not consistent typical activity um, that you could potentially kind of track down. I mean, if you have um, any type of behavioral analytics tool. And if you're logging these kind of things, those things feel like they should stand out immediately. But of course, like I said before, uh, it really just depends on the maturity of the organization. So it's it's funny you've called that out specifically in the public videos uh, directory because last week, um, I don't remember what specific article was, but they were running certain files, I think, out of the music directory, but they weren't audio files. So I was talking about, you know, a really interesting behavior is to look for non-standard media files in like the pictures, video, music directories, or those directories that are common on the Windows OS that you wouldn't see exist there for two reasons. One, because it seems like they're available directories that they hide things in because almost no one goes into them, so they don't see it. But right. two, I've also seen where insider threats, where they want to 
harvest and hold data, they seem to drop them into those types of folders too because they're less conspicuous. So, yeah. Great. Yeah, uh, so moving on, um, I have an article from Yahoo Finance. Again, I, I always like finding some of these articles that you sent to Charlie Security. Uh, this is not about stocks, right? This time it's uh, centered around the subject trading market, right? And I think every year they talk about how much money is getting put into cybersecurity of all of this talks there it, it's it's stating that it's projected to reach 500 billion by 2030 from a, a market cap perspective mm. and that kind of goes into what they feel like is going to grow the growth rate of that 500 billion. uh they call out hardware which is something i'm, I'm really curious about talking about with you um Infrastructure protection, cloud security, that makes sense. They call it IDS and IPS, um, which seems a little bit antiquated for kind of where the direction cybersecurity is going. Uh, of course, managed services and SSPs are going to grow. That's another kind of potential hot topic and, and kind of question mark as far as where we should be pouring the money into. Um, and then, you know, further down, it talks about government defense. Uh, APAC, Asia Pacific markets going to grow. Um, and then further down, it kind of talks about each of the outlooks. Um, so it kind of ranks the market segmentation, hardware, software services in that order, endpoint, cloud, network application, infrastructure, data security, and others. Uh, it goes into the solution outlook and, and says unified threat management's at the top, IDS, IPS, DLP. IAM, SIM, DDoS, risk and compliance, um, and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. I don't, oh yeah. And then key players in the cybersecurity market. This is another one that was very interesting to me. Cisco's at the forefront, Palo Alto, McAfee, which is called Trellix now. So you gotta like, I'm, you gotta dig into the article and, and wondering, you know, what expertise or outsource resources that they, they kind of talk to Broadcom is on that list. Um, CrowdStrike's at the bottom. Semantic now, right? So maybe that's why they got the list. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, I mean, I, I absolutely agree that that market's going to grow over the next, what is it? Wow. Almost six years. Um, yeah. we're about to be in 2024, but I, I was really shocked at the, hardware segment growing that much and then they call out like IDS IPS. Um yeah, I got some comments on that. Yeah. Uh and then the managed services side. So let's uh I'll pause there. Let's get your comments real quick. Yeah. So when I first saw this, the one thing that I really made me think about was I think it might be slightly skewed because how much of that spend is being taken from IT because IT is kind of absorbing security. For like yeah. everybody in IT is kind of doing security, right? And when you implement or do things, you're using security futures built in and, you know, so it becomes, I, I think those are kind of spaces are merging and those budgets are kind of, uh, there's not a, as strong as a fine line there. Right. Sure. Um, and then when we talk about, um, for instance, the hardware, uh, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, moving away from the cloud again. Right. People are starting to realize what's the role of the cloud and not dumping everything into the cloud. So I feel like there's that balancing now where, you know, one cloud infrastructure is growing still. So that means the cloud big vendors are going to be buying tons of hardware to support that, but there's still going to be more on-premise data centers. I think we see, um, which then means, you know, kind of increase in hardware to kind of balance that out. Cause a lot of people dumped a lot of that. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, that's a great point. I guess keep going. You got another point. Uh, well, if you if you want to hit on the hardware, I got another one to jump to the IDS. All right. So, yeah, simple so the hardware side. I think people are starting to understand that uh, just because you move to the cloud doesn't mean you're decreasing costs. You're decreasing your kind of uh, innate risk from having to manage hardware. But to get the same payloads that you might have in a data center, I mean, the the cost over the cost of goods is going to be you know a lot higher than if you were just buying some servers and dropping them into a data center and having some initial kind of capital. Right? Um, and if your budget is... Um... If you don't have the budget to make a big upfront spend, doing things in the cloud also makes sense, right? Because you can kind of accrue your revenue as you over time to help pay for things versus you might save if you can afford the bulky prices up front in the long run, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, I've uh, had to peek into the world of an organization that's using AWS and their spend was a million and a half dollars a month yeah. for this blue news that they're running. Right. It's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Right. So I could imagine that if you had those workloads in a data center and you weren't having to spend for time up, like the uptime and the resources of computers and, and virtual machines, um, yeah. you know, you could trim data over that cost. Huge shit. Yeah. Right. You have to pay from servers, but I mean, you take on some additional risk, right? It's like, it's kind of almost a risk management to exercise. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Moving on to the IP. I, I, yeah, I, so the, the IDS IPS stuff. So I kind of have two opinions here. One, I feel like there's a huge gap. Like IDS IPS was really big, but everyone kind of controlled the edge or their edge or some internal areas or whatever, right? So um, it was easy to start deploying IDS IPS and use those to protect or have visibility to some network things. Then you started running into our network started getting so fast and the amount of data, data we're moving was so much that compute couldn't keep up. You know, you'd really have to design your networks appropriately and kind of control your flow of traffic in order to have that good visibility. Right. Or if you wanted to buy something that can really handle those speeds and throughputs, you were paying an arm and a leg, which people are like, I can get more return buying other security products and then maybe skipping on IDS IPS and only putting them in key places. So I think that's kind of where that kind of fell historically. Well, also with the rise of the cloud, network visibility really tanked, right? Now we're, yep. we're seeing that it's really hard to get visibility. Some people have had some interesting solutions for it, um, but it's not what it would be if you controlled your own environment. And that being said, I think now we're at a, um, a point in time where compute is getting good enough to fill those gaps as far as resource constraint and just trying to run IDS IPS. And there's a big enough need, right? So with those two things, you know, being, I, I think, relevant now, I think that kind of adds more fodder or more potential for IDS IPS growth, um, especially since it was a really strong capability. I think what we're going to run into now is kind of what we're running into is ID, it was, was kind of, I wouldn't say dying, but it was kind of falling off in some places, is we don't necessarily have the expertise in people because... Um, it, if you're going to manage the IDS IPS like you would an AV where you just let it just download signatures and run its own thing, you're not going to get the right returns with that, you know? So um, it'll be interesting how they bridge that gap. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's generally a move. I mean, I think that's a very important tool in our organization for visibility. I don't think that's the most important. And again, to your point, the scale 
now that we're seeing traffic across the board, um, the flow rates, uh, those are only going to get bigger and bigger as this, right. as these organizations grows. Um, so that one's interesting. You know, I, I don't know if, I mean, that, I think that might be tied to hardware as well, right? If you're talking about hardware, yeah. I think IDs, IPS, so that might be why those two things are kind of at the top of that list. Um, and then getting into managed services. So again, if you talk about cybersecurity, we know there's 5 million jobs available right now in cyber, and there's a big people problem. And all these MSPs are still growing and saying that they're protecting organizations. They don't have the people either, right? And I, I love MSPs, used to work at one. I think it's saturated market right now. And I think the more that we rely on these firms for security purposes, the less secure we're going to be. Because, um, I mean, there there are companies that do managed detection response, MSPs. They say they have 500 customers, right? 600 customers. And they have 100 analysts. Like, that's not scalable, right? Yeah. So that market growing is a little troublesome for me, especially when we saw the risk at outsourcing development, IT, security, like we even keep doing it and then seeing the problems with it, uh, onshoring it, and then offloading it. I feel like there's this like kind of rips off back with, with how we kind of treat, um, uh, you know, the, the outsourcing and, and managed services across the board. So, yeah, I feel like, yeah, but my thoughts on that is I think people have to be careful with we understand there's a skill gap or pretend like they, you talk about how there's people that are in the market that aren't as skilled as they need to be, or there's a shortage of people in general. And, but I think that also speaks to people hear that. And it also promotes them to not want to trust their own people either because they don't know how skilled they are compared to the rest of the market because there's a shortage and how do they know where their people fit. And, and not only that, you can have incredibly skilled people and still face security consequences of breaches and things like that. It's not really a dream collection of that so but when you're not in the space you don't really know how to interpret or digest all of that and what i would say is yeah managed server providers can help you in a lot of ways um one they can help you uh get a leg up or a better understanding of things help offload some things um but it should be uh i've almost looked at it as a tool and a collaborative approach not kind of offloading but look at your budget spend between what you spend for that and what you spend for training because if you're just investing in managed service provider services and you're not spending a lot of your own people, then you're going to find this huge imbalance where you have to depend too much on your managed service providers because they can do yeah. things that your people can't. And I think you need to balance those things very well. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point for sure. It's not a, it should not be kind of an all in one stop shot basically we just outsource everything there should still be some internal mechanisms and processes in place to protect yourself and to understand what that organization is actually doing and the value they bring um right so. perfect all right next one yeah so this next one um it's a Ars Technica article uh it's called the torrent of image-based phishing emails are harder to detect and more convincing and basically what they were seeing was an uptick on basically empty emails with attached images that had QR codes in them. Um, and those QR codes, if people went to them, would lead to credential harvesting sites. 
And, you know, the interesting thing here is one, I mean, it pretty much bypasses almost all the detections that most uh, engines have built into them for looking for, you know, fishing type behavior. Um, and then two, it is very convincing because you can put into the QR code that's being provided in the image, the, you know, certain fields you want to be auto-filled. So when they pop over to the credential harvesting site, it would already populate their email address, for instance, as the user. So it looks a little more legitimate, like they've been there before and they just need to fit in their password. And in the image, they'd also have some uh, like alarming, like, hey, you need to review or you need to, you know, re-auth, update, whatever, you know, whatever the, you know, their justification was. Um, so, you know, that was very interesting, but, you know, from a, a hunting perspective, like this is where I was thinking it was even more interesting was, you know, if you're going to be going to a QR code and it's an image, it's not something, you know, I would say clickable, uh, and you're going to go to it on your phone, all of a sudden, if someone got that email, you'd have no way to determine if they went to it because it would go off network through cellular or through whatever. So all of a sudden you can see maybe they got the email but there is no way to really validate other than talking to the user and getting verbal confirmation, which it's kind of hard to depend on that for users because some users get scared but they never get called by security people and they're like, hey, did you do this? They're like, oh, I don't know. No, I didn't. Um, so so that part, you know, uh, is also kind of a stress. But I've also seen this, you know, personally, uh, my mother-in-law, she actually got a random text where someone just sent a QR code. And I don't know, she's paranoid enough in general. Um so she just ignored it, right? But it came from someone that she knew. So, you know, I was also curious, are we just going to kind of see this across all different medias to see what is the highest success rate? What does it look like? Uh, but it's an interesting problem. And I know we've talked about like, oh, don't scan random QR codes, you know, in the wild, right? Because people at least heard that. So I think with this, it's kind of important to get this in front of your security awareness training folks. Um make sure they have some materials around this because when you're getting things in your email that look legitimate, that have QR codes, um, if you can't get to it from clicking on a link, which is completely adverse to what we tell people, maybe you shouldn't be going to it with your phone or in a camera. So, um, okay. but yeah, it's interesting, interesting way technique. Yeah. Great. I mean, you've already kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, it's weird. So in the case that you were talking about with your mom, like you get a QR code in a text message, I'm confused on how you would even scan that to get to the site. It's typically for your camera app. You're not going to take it. You can't take a picture of the. So you can click on it though. You can pull that stuff out. Right. But yeah. Yeah. It, it's a weird, it was a weird method to get somebody to do something via text. Right. That doesn't make sense. Um, just from the initial kind of security mindset. Right. The one in the office or. If the laptop sends you a QR code, yeah, again, if you're pulling up your phone and it's work from home environment and you're not on a corporate network, unless you have some sort of mobile device management tool deployed, you're not going to see anything, right? Um, and so, yeah, to your point, that is a little bit more of a scarier situation uh, because, you know, you're kind of out, like you're kind of screwed at that point from a security perspective and see that yeah, is uh in place in all the right places because yeah. that's the best defense against something like this yeah absolutely so yeah i don't have much more on that one that, that is uh it is kind of an interesting um you know just it's that's <laughs> it's an interesting approach i guess right right um which is funny but all right so moving on yeah hello 
script. This article, all right, so this article is from cybersecuritynews.com. It's talking about using DNS hex records to execute malware. And so this one, I was kind of getting, I want to get your take on it. Um, and it is interesting. So believe in this, somebody needs to actually have access on the, the actual box to run PowerShell to do the NS lookup, which is a query into a DNS record. And from my understanding, it looks like they did an NS lookup on the domain and it returned the text value that was in the, de uh, the DNS text record with an invoke web request to run a uh, particular file. Um, and, it, and it looks like based on the root domain um, or the subdomain, it was pulling down different uh, commands. Now, what I'm trying to understand in this article, you might be able to help, is if those, those invoke requests actually executed or as a way to pull down the next set of commands to run on the device, um, or as a way of, of you know, deploying the BBS script files or the JavaScript files that they pull down. But it is an interesting technique um, to store commands in a text file off the domain and use that as some sort of repository. Because uh, outside of knowing NS lookups, not so common, they happen. Um, looking up the mains, again, they're ephemeral, they change all the time. Um, but this method of pulling down these scripts next was, was pretty interesting. So, um, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah. So, you know, I liked, I looked a lot of like DNS tunneling and, you know, obviously they create a lot of traffic. A lot of times they use the TXT record, um, to tunnel back and forth, like the C2, uh, because you can actually get a fair amount of data in a TXT record. Um, and uh, so it's common for people to use that maliciously, but I've, ne I've never seen this where you're trying to use it as a C2 to control commands personally. But to your point about how would you execute these things, so how I would imagine it would look in the macro of the VBS script is you would be storing the output of this DNS lookup into a variable that you then run the execute command on that variable. So you basically pass the whole line as one go. Um, mm -hmm. So, and I think that helps when they talked about bypassing a lot of your EDR type tooling or detection tooling, because usually detection tooling is looking for common patterns of those commands that are, you know, in that flat file, they can read very easily, or they're looking for obfuscation and encoding. And in this case, you're not going to see it. You're just going to see a bunch of DNS lookups and those results being stored to a variable and then execute said variable, right? So um, very short and sweet and doesn't look like much. Um, but the one thing it's common with a lot of DNS based attacks is you'll see a lot of subdomain stuff, depending on how often they want to communicate. And in this case, if they're using it as C2, I'd expect it to happen more often, but the, the difference is, is I feel like with the tunneling, it's more randomized with this, you kind of have specific subdomains for specific purposes, or maybe, maybe your, your targets, maybe they always talk to the same, um, something to think about. Now, the other thing is, you know, I, when you look at DNS records, like the TXT record is used for some validation verification. You know, sometimes they, they people put their uh, uh, public keys and things to associate with whatever I think in there uh, so that you can validate that it's a real record. But 
it's common for it to be an A record, a quad A record, or an MX record. Those are the things you commonly see. Um, and something to take note on too is like how often is TXT being used? Is it being used from the same host? It's more interesting when it's being used from a user's host than it is from say like a um, a lot of the validation for like DKIM and things like that. You know, if they're going to be using records out there, it's going to be coming from your exchange servers or you know. So you'd expect that activity to exist more there if you're going to be looking things up like that. Um, so, so there's that. And the other thing was length potentially. Like it's kind of hard because if you're going to be looking up, you know, people's like public keys, they're going to be a long record in there. But you know, the same way I you know look for scripts that are encoded, stored in registry. You know, I crawl the registry and look for anything that's longer than 200 bytes. And when I do, then say, oh, these interesting. So with the TXT records, you know, if they actually are packing a lot of code in there for some reason, like they want more of a full complete script, because it liked a lot of this was like some testing based things. I think right. um, if someone had a full blown script this way, I would expect it to be fairly long. So pay attention to your TXT DNS requests. And if you usually, if you see those, you can also see the content length. They don't really store what you actually would see from the record, but, you know, content length if you have network visibility and look for anything that's abnormally large. Um, so, but yeah, it was a really interesting technique for sure. Yeah, it was a really interesting that said it looked like they were trying to figure some stuff out, like in doing some testing in somebody else's environment. Right? So that was kind of interesting from a methodology perspective. Yeah. Um, like, cool. Uh, move on to the last one. Yeah, so the last one um, I pulled out was the DPRK strikes using a new variant of Rust Bucket. So this whole thing is affiliated with North Korea, and Rust Bucket is one of their malwares they use. And, it, and typically, this type of activity is targeting you know password associations to specific things that they can exploit financially and cryptocurrency wallets. Um, and what's interesting with this, though, is, you know, they're targeting macOS specifically. Rust Bucket's, I think, a macOS. I don't know if it's a fully macOS uh, malware, but it is common to macOS. Um, and looking at some of the behaviors, uh, one of the things that stood out right away, uh, they try to break up first their, I guess, grabbing of things and executing things into multiple stages and not just one. So I'm guessing historically, because I didn't look at the uh, older version, it might have been kind of one big go. So in this one, there was actually a series of um, curl commands that pulled out different components of different things. Uh, and if you, one of the things I always pay attention there is you can usually look for a curl agent, you know, user agent, and they actually change the agent. So with curl, with the dash a command, you can you can make the user agent whatever you want. Um, sometimes people can do this to try to hide it, or sometimes people block curl, and that's a way to get around it being blocked from like an IDS IPS perspective. And so they were using the dash A, but they were just changing the L and curl dash agent to a one. So it looked kind of the same. So that was interesting, but but I wouldn't like stick stick to that. But just knowing that there's a series of curl commands with dash A, uh, I think it's worth noting that that might be interesting behavior if you see it. Right. Uh, and then uh, uh, looking at the C2, they did kind of normalize the user agent fields. So typical what you normally see so that was a little harder to look for. They did a pretty good job with that. Uh, there's also, they leverage a lot of system API calls for functionality to kind of put information together for information they had passed. So a little harder to look for as well. 
but something that's really, you know, a lot of us, including myself, aren't, aren't, uh, super fluent with threat hunting on Max. But, you know, the more and more time we spend and we see things, you know, I, I get more comfortable with, they do leverage the persistence through launch agents. So when you think about launch agents on a Mac, it's similar to like the startup folders or the registry run keys, essentially. So, so basically what it, it's, it's on a per user basis. And so if that user logs in, which most Mac users don't let anyone else touch their Mac. So it's always them. So it doesn't matter. Uh, but it's in the user's library launch agent. Um, and then what they do is they add a P list. So P lists are very common in Macs for controlling a lot of like portion of the operating system. So looking at P lists, understanding what they are is helpful, but in that P list, you know, it, it points to another binary that runs in another location, but there's also other labels and things you can put in there to control the behavior. So, you know, when I make it the similarity to like the startup folder and things, they have like a run at load, launch only once, keep alive program arguments, anything you want to pass the program, um, which is interesting because the malware they run requires uh, arguments because they, they uh, program it in Swift. So you need to provide the arguments to whatever they coded. And that's where you're able to see the actual C2 that gets launched and then some other arguments to go with it. Uh, so that plist is kind of a strong, um, I guess, artifact to look for. But understanding how it works is good for you to try to look for these things in the future. If anyone wants to exploit similar techniques. Yeah, I, um, it was interesting. Through this whole article, they keep, and again, this is from Alaska, they keep saying that I guess there was a, one of the things I love they called out in the beginning though, was that uh, organization was changing their infrastructure to bypass detection capabilities. So they immediately call that out as, as something to, you know, they, they call out indicators of compromise, but they also say that they're starting to change their infrastructure to bypass. Oh yeah. Detection mechanisms. And then they call out that there's some, some methods in there that bypass virus total from a, IOC enrichment perspective. And then they continue to kind of call out that they had, uh, if you were using a lactic agent, you're protected. And so like, <laughs> I, again, I'm like, ah, all right. So how, like, tell me how. And so they go down at the bottom and there's an EQL query. Uh, they have a suspicious curl file download via OSA script. Uh, and then they have suspicious URL as an argument to self-signed binary. I don't know if those are the two things that they're saying that you're protected. Um, but it, it bothered me a little bit because at least the curl command was very specific about this tack dash, uh, this taco, uh, option. Right. And it, I don't know. It didn't seem like a behavioral query and hunting query. It still felt very detection oriented and they already felt president Go ahead. Well, we've talked about in the past, like people figure out a way that makes it hard to detect. And then we figure out how to detect it. And then obfuscation moves in. And I feel like you can easily obfuscate and run the same things and you bypass those types of detections, right? Exactly. I mean, they set the precedent in the article saying this organization already understands that they can change some of their methodology to bypass detection rules. Um, especially, you know, they, they give you a YAR rule and it's looking for that very specific user string, which is super easy to manipulate. Yeah, uh, yeah. and so I don't know, I, the, being the skeptic and like, 
you know, working with you guys on the team and understanding the importance of funding. Everything they talked about in this article is awesome from the technical perspective, but it, there's still a little bit of that kind of product centric. We got you covered if you're using the endpoint and show you how they had you covered. But, you know, this is well, like, uh, I mean, I feel like we got to just have a poster, right? Like when you think about the first time you see a new threat or, you know, an updated threat, you like start with IOCs, you go to behaviors, and then you go to obfuscation. Like, how do you, yep. can you detect all three of those? Because that's the way it's going to mature, right? Right. So, yeah. And then, and again, and here they have like process argument outs less than or equal to, equal to three. Throw a, a different process argument in there that doesn't actually do anything, right? It should right. be like a verbose arg, like a hack V, just to me. You yeah, just yeah. the detection methodology. So, you know, I think I'm just trying to call it out because it is important to understand the difference between detection engineering and threat hunting for behaviors. And they're both very important. And again, IOCs first, detection engineering typically comes after the hunting process, but there are some, some kind of quick wins you can get if you understand the artifacts and then move to like that long form running into the obfuscation and understanding what the actual goal is. But I think this article kind of tells that story pretty explicitly on on how we kind of think and how we try to think um, as hunters. Yep. So, uh, cool. I think that's cool. it for the, the day. Yeah, so news. Yeah, we got uh, one reminder just to kind of push out there. So, you know, those that have joined us in the past for our live uh, interactive podcasts where we interact with our listeners through Discord and we have you know, good conversations, a lot longer than this. And we have uh, a themed cocktail. We all try to participate or participate one way or another. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Our, our next one is going to be July 20th um, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, so, yeah, join us. Uh, we look forward to it every time. And hopefully we, we had really good participation last time. Hopefully we get really good participation moving forward so that it can kind of you know, spawn some really interesting discussions. Uh, otherwise, you just get to listen to us kind of talk and make fun of each other. With that, I just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Wood Threat Hunting Podcast today. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week. Uh, so with that, that closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of July 3rd, 2023. Happy hunting, everybody. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.